<clears throat> My name is Clancy, and I'm an alcoholic. Oh, I'm really very glad to be here. I, uh, I really enjoyed this convention. You have had a great convention. You really have. Last night, how do you get up early, 4.30 Friday morning, to get out of the airport to catch a plane to come here, and it was raining and cold and dreary in California, and I got here, and I was tired and didn't feel very good, and I sat in the meeting last night, and I was just kind of grumpy. And uh, two great speakers. I, by the time of the meeting, something clicked within me, and I've been feeling good ever since. It really, I want to. Uh, for those of you who weren't here last night, you missed two excellent talks. As far as I'm concerned, oh come on, don't, don't take up my time clapping for others. I'll bestow whatever goodness there is to be bestowed. But Tammy, you missed Tammy. You gave a great talk. I'd never heard her talk before in this sweet little southern voice. And then, then they gave me ten more years in the penitentiary. <laughs> I thought she'd escaped because it was more than less than ten years ago. She, anyway, uh, and Jerry, who's one of my favorite speakers, he has such an impeccable taste for the language and he, he envelops it in this false, good old boy, Southern. <laughs> Jerry, in case you don't know, is probably, now I mean this seriously, one of the, probably one of the very, very top corporate trial attorneys in America. And he has won some billion dollar cases, or at least one billion dollar case. And he is, no, no, don't clap. <laughs> and he's just a good old boy from down Texas. Just a good old boy, yeah. Whenever you hear somebody from the South say, I'm a good old boy, put your hand in your wallet and back out of the room. Because you're about to be out slicked, I'll tell you. And this morning, Billy, another good old boy, gave a great talk. I always enjoy hearing Billy. Delegate, used to be a delegate to New York, and his charming wife, who truly is the prettiest, cutest thing I've ever seen. I hope this doesn't get back to California. <laughs> and I missed the Aladon speaker this morning because I had a, I'd made a plan to have a meeting with someone and discuss some tedious problem. And had a good lunch, and, and then Gail this afternoon, who's uh, Gail had a story of just went on and on and on of just failure after failure. And I want to tell you something, Gail, and I hope this won't offend you. I don't mean to offend you because I think you're a dear girl. But a person like you really shouldn't drink. How are you? I just stay off it completely. (laughs) Then I was still tired from the week, and I went to my room to lie down for five minutes before the sponsorship panel, and I woke up at 5.05, and I missed that, so I'm sorry. But it's been a great convention, and John John is an excellent speaker, another... Southerner who will tell us all about how things are down in the grit circuit. But a great speaker. John and Jerry both I've had over the years had the opportunity to invite him to come to California to speak for me, so I really like him. And uh, I want to thank Nancy very much for some very inspiring uh, announcements, especially the upcoming conventions and things. Uh, I, guess, I guess I'm kind of a corny sentimentalist. And maybe you... Maybe you'll laugh at me, but I, I was thinking this morning, if I had one day left to live, somebody said, you have one day left to live, I think I, what I'd like to do, I wish it would be during this convention, 
and I would come here and ask Nancy to make some announcements for me. <laughs> well, maybe it's corny, but it would make that last day seem like forever. Just kidding, just kidding. But it's, Nancy told has been telling jokes consistently throughout the week, and very good ones, I liked them. And Jerry got up and told some joke, and everybody's been telling jokes. I never tell jokes. But this, once tonight, I'm going to tell a joke, because everybody's been telling a joke. They've been telling Irish jokes and cowboy jokes, and I'm going to tell you a Norwegian joke. Up in northern Wisconsin, little town bar, an old Norwegian guy sitting there drunk. Late at night, the bartender says, I tell you, Sven, I told you we're closing up. You got to get out of here. I'm going out in the backyard now and clean up some things. You be gone when I come back. He says, okay. And he gets up and falls down. So, oh, Jesus, I can't even walk. And he slowly pulled himself across the dirty barroom floor to get outside. Just, I'll get to a telephone pole and maybe I can stand up. And, uh, and down he goes again. Oh, oh, I, I can't stand up. I only live a block away. Maybe I can make it. He pulls himself across the sidewalk for a block. Gets to his house, pulls himself up the step. Gets to the porch and grabs the porch. Oh, it's so good to be. Oh, and he goes. And he crawls in the house and up the stairs. And he gets to his bed. He hangs out there. Oh, he's just so good. Yumping him. It's good to be. Down he goes on the bed. He just passes out and falls asleep. The next morning, his wife call, comes in, pre-Alanon lady. <laughs> well, came home pretty drunk again last night, I see. Now, why do you say that? I just came home a little late. I wasn't drunk. Oh, yeah, the bar called. You forgot your wheelchair again. <laughs> anyway... We've, uh, we've had a mixed bag of speakers, and there's certainly evidence that, uh, that what the book says is true. We are people who would not ordinarily mix. There are probably not very many people in this room who would know one another if it weren't for the, for the common illness we share. And it's a strange thing. We meet all kinds of people from top to bottom. Uh, I've had the opportunity to sponsor the band to put the flag on the moon, and the guy can't hold a job as a dishwasher. And, and all the areas in between, it's just a remarkable thing. And it's, it's really surprising because we've all come here not wanting to be here, not wanting to stay here, not thinking we could. We, uh, I, like many people here, have had a great deal of difficulty in staying sober in AA. I came to AA when I was a young man. I went to my first meeting in 1949. Some people thought I should go to AA. I was 22. I wasn't terribly old. But I was uh, drinking bizarrely, they thought. And I went to an AA meeting, and I was just appalled by it. A bunch of old fat guys sitting around a table, and they looked at me. And I didn't know it, but I was younger. I was, by 20 years, the youngest person in that state to go to AA. He said, what are you supposed to be? I said, are you think you're an alcoholic? I didn't think I was an alcoholic. I got problems, but I'm not an alcoholic. I said, no, I don't think I am. He said, what do you think your problem is? I think I'm too sensitive. <laughs> Look at this, Lemoyne. <laughs> I never told anybody that again for a long time, I'll tell you that. But that's what I was. And I, early on, I discovered I'm not like these people. 
And then I went to a different city where I had to work in an advertising department of a big company, and I got some trouble drinking, and I, the human resources guy gave me a talk on my behavior, and I, and he said, have you ever thought of going to AA? And a big light bulb formed in my head. No, but I understand it really helps alcoholics. So I, I got, he gave me a couple weeks to go to AA and get my stuff together. And from then on, I made a career of that. I'd work for a company, do well till it got bad, and then they'd call me in, and I'd say, I'm going to AA. At least it'd give me a couple weeks to look for a new job. And I'd go to AA, and I went to AA a lot of places, a lot of cities, and AA is a nice place, it's full of nice, a lot of nice people. But there's one basic thing that doesn't apply to me. And if you're new tonight, we have a lot of people in their first day, and the first week, and first month here. You will hear this, although I presume many of you are slippers, because those are usually the people who come to conventions. Real new people are home being sick. <laughs> I'm not judging you. <laughs> a few years ago, I was at a meeting like this in Kentucky. And there's some nice clean-cut guy got up there a couple days sober, and he was a, And down there in the front row sat some guy with his face just ripped apart in a black eye and... And I said, Jesus, that's the, we should be the, getting, the guy getting a book. You're, and uh, he came up to me at the coffee shop yesterday, and he's got three years down. He showed me his picture. He said, that's the way I looked, and look at me now. He looked better then. <laughs> but anyway, AA, AA is not apparently for a lot of people because of this reason. There are certain things you will learn about Alcoholics Anonymous first two meetings you go to them, then thereafter. That an alcoholic is a person whose problem is alcohol, and eventually these people with problems are alcohol come to Alcoholics Anonymous, and they admit their problem is alcohol, and then they sober up, and then they return to God, and they take certain good actions along the way, and eventually they feel good. And the problem I always have had with that, I wish I could have done that, but I'm not, I can't be an alcoholic for two very simple reasons. One, my problem is not really alcohol. I wish to hell it were. I really wish to hell it were. I don't have the same symptoms these people do. These people have symptoms like, I can't stop drinking. I can stop drinking, I've stopped drinking again and again and again. My problem is after I stop drinking, I'm supposed to be feeling better. Someone sneaks into my bedroom sooner or later in the middle of the night and puts an invisible spring in my gut. And the next day somebody starts to tighten it. And it doesn't, it just comes out as just a little, little growing restlessness. Just a little irritability with being treated like a craphead by these people who are living off my abilities. And just a little resentment towards being treated this way. And little by little the tension mounts and I, uh, I've tried various things. I've read, I've gone to psychiatrists, I've done a lot of things. But I'll tell you, my problem, my problem is not overcome by that, my problem is because of a strange quirk of fate, the only thing that cuts that is two or three drinks. But, and I don't explain to people. I take the two or three drinks, but not because my problem is alcohol. I don't know how to explain that to people. My problem is there's something off balance in me. And there always seems to be, as far back as I can remember, when I was a little boy, it seemed to me a lot of the time, I always felt that there was something missing in me. And I didn't know what it was. But when people got close to me, they seemed to recognize there was something missing in me, and they didn't like me as well as they liked each other. And I didn't seem to fit in. I didn't have a smooth feeling with people, and i very bad at small talk and doing things. And, you know, you can't really get along just by saying things like, well, 
going to be a scorcher tomorrow, huh? <laughs> and, that, and, and I thought, when I grow up, it'll be different. But all my, it seemed one, not all, was much of my life. It's almost as though, if you're supposed to feel like that inside, there's always some reason I feel like this, just off, just off, very reason. And when I grew up, I, it was still the same, different reasons, but still the same thing. Not quite fitting and not, not being at the level of, with the people I want to be with, but level of people I don't want to be with. And, and not, people didn't understand that if they could just treat me right, I'd really be something. And uh, if I could just find the place I fit in. This, and I'll tell you, I haven't thought about this much, but if I could think of a phrase that could embellishes or could really evaluates my life, it would be this, in cities and jobs, after a while, this isn't it either. Thought it was, but I can see now this isn't it either. I don't like this town, I don't like this job, I don't like this crap that I'm working for, and I'm sick of being treated like a piece of crap. And pretty soon it's just a matter of time to, and I drink, and I sometimes drink too much. Not because I want to drink too much, but just because I got a lot of pressure on my emotions. And then I drink too much, people say, see, your problem is alcohol, isn't it? And you have to say, yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> but I just want to shriek what you don't understand. That's not my problem. If I could just find the place I fit in. And I would, I've worked in a lot of several cities and several states. I had some big successes from time to time. I was on the faculty of the University of Texas, staged a grand opera at the University of Texas. But there's always things happening later that screw it up. Ten months later, I was in the Texas Insane Asylum <laughs> at Big Spring, Texas, and they saw my. I, I was there. I'd been there for a while. I was there briefly as a suicide, because I, not from drinking, nothing in my ever said drinking. I, my problem was I'd stayed sober too long. Is what happened. <laughs> and I stayed sober too long because I felt so guilty because I'd been in jail one night when my son died and they couldn't find me and I swore this would never happen again. And I stayed sober for my dead son, John, until the day came. I couldn't stand it anymore. And I, my wife took the children to church, and I pulled the car in the garage, took up a hose, the exhaust pipe, and killed myself. And a neighbor noticed this and pulled me out dead and got me alive and sent me back to the hospital. But I got to the Big Spring State Hospital, and really just a, bunch, a sorry bunch of goofs, you know. I had been in Texas that long. And I thought, if I can't get out of here, you know, I deserve to be here with these redneck pukes. And... Uh, it just took me a while to find a way to get through a door and down a corridor and through another door and across the yard and over the fence, and I was gone. But the problem there in Big Spring, like much of Texas, you suddenly realize after you get out, they can see you're running for three days. <laughs> and you feel like such a fool out there, you just... <laughs> it's just a matter of time till somebody's field glasses pick you up. Why, well, there goes that little Yankee sumbitch now. <laughs> they snatched me back, gave me a couple months of electric shock treatments for that run. And then after a the couple months of electric shock treatment, they had, they had won my attention. And, uh, and they looked at my record, I'd, stayed, I'd staged a grand opera at the University of Texas, and they allowed me to be the director of the Christmas pageant at Big Spring State Hospital in December of 1956. And it wasn't really a complex production. <laughs> the director's main job was trying to hold the three wise men off the Virgin Mary, if you possibly could. 
Get back, Lamar, get back. We just want to worship her play and see. And I almost didn't get out of there because I was in there as a schizophrenic with paranoid tendencies. And what saved me while I was there, they put it in the first experimental alcoholic ward in the state of Texas, run by alcoholics. And I'd been in and out of AA for that time by seven years. And so I knew how to play alcoholic, and they didn't know I'd been in AA before, and I pretended to be a newcomer. And they, I became their favorite. I just was wonderful. I got transferred to that ward, and uh, people came and went. I stayed and learned. And they really start sending me out to little towns around there, to, to uh, Odessa and Midland. And I'd take patients out and go over there. We have a speaker tonight from the state hospital, Clancy. Good evening. I'm here on behalf of my fellow patients at Big Springs State Hospital to thank each and every one of you for bringing a message of faith and hope to us. We who have lost our way in the vast desert of alcoholism have come to the tall green hills of sobriety, and they were too steep for our weary legs. But folks such as you have pointed out 12 golden stairs that we can climb one after another. And now as we reach the top of our hill and we get ready to go to our homes throughout West Texas, we want you to know that we would not have found the place without you. And we will find other lost wayfarers, and we will call to them over here, over here. <laughs> now, you can laugh at that. That got me out of the Texas nuthouse. And I never had another drink until I ran out of Thorazine. But I mean, I've stopped drinking. I've done a lot of things. But there's something wrong inside of me. I know I spent thousands of dollars in psychoanalysis. People say you shouldn't go to psychoanalysis. I love psychoanalysis. And I never knew why, because all you ever get is bad news. You find out, that happened to me, I didn't realize it, you know. <laughs> and I, I never knew why I liked it, because it cost me a lot of money, got a lot of bad news. And some years later, when I'd been sober a while, well, this is about 25 years ago, Guy came up to me, our sponsor, he says, I found this new therapy. It's really helped me in making a breakthrough. I said, oh, really? What's it called? He said, it's called Adult Children of Alcoholics. And I'd never heard of that. And I said, gee, that's interesting. What's it about? He said, why don't you come to some meetings with me? I said, sure, I'd like to go see what it is. And as I sat in those meetings, I began to understand why psychoanalysis had been so, why I liked it. I, because I could see the, the dynamic. You know, all the emotions people have, that I, people like me have, Probably the worst one is guilt. And I was raised in a very strict church. I mean, we had a Southern Baptist talk last night. In the Norwegian Lutheran Church, our dropouts become Southern Baptist bishops. <laughs> Seriously. Yeah, we are. One of the things they say about Norwegian Lutherans, even if you're married for 30 years, you'd never make love standing up just in the fear that some passerby would think you were dancing. It's a tough church. And I was catechized, and I was confirmed, and I knew the Bible, and I could sing little songs in English and Norwegian. And uh, it's quite clear what they say. If you break two or three commandments, you're in trouble. If you break four or five, you really are in deep trouble. If you break more than that, you might as well forget it and get ready to go to hell. And when I grew up, I wasn't terribly bad, it didn't seem to me, but I just seemed to need more fun than other Lutherans. And I got a little trouble and problems and situations, and 
By the time I was 15, I was a screwed up kid, I'm guilty all the time, felt bad and acted worse. And, and I, uh, I've always carried a lot of guilt. It seems to be part of much of that scale is guilt. Either, not only things you've done, but as you get older, things you haven't done, you should have done. Sins of omission. You know, it's kind of interesting. Young men and women who don't know much about life yet, as I used to do, cry out to the world, Justice! I want justice! But as you get older, you change your cry. Mercy. Mercy, for Christ's sake. Mercy. I've had all the justice I can handle. But in cycle, as I sat in this adult children's house, I watched something going on. And I watched the dynamic, and I didn't know what it was until I recognized it. And it's this. People who have deep senses of guilt and lack of self-worth and so on, there's hardly any way to get out of that. But what they do with these therapies, as they did with me in psychoanalysis, whether they intend to or not, what boils down to this, they little by little show the patient that he is a product of unfeeling hands, people who did not nurture him or her, people who did not give you the love you needed, people who did not back you up, people who whether they intend to or not, ruin your life. And little by little as that happens, you slowly take on the role of a victim. Not funny at all, because when you're a victim, little by little the guilt dissipates. It wasn't my fault, they made me this way. They made me, this. How could, they may have meant well, and they made me this well, and the guilt gradually goes away. Because when it's their fault, it is no longer my fault. Now you say, what's wrong with that? And there's nothing wrong with that for most people, I suppose. But for people like me, it turns out, I look in retrospect, it just about destroyed me. And I'll tell you why. Because anything you get in this world, it seems like there's always a little price tag you've got to pay for it. And there are, because to get rid of guilt, there are three big price tags in, in victimization. One price tag you pay, you don't even recognize until you look back. You must maintain, sustain, and enhance feelings of resentment toward the people who have failed you. Now you sit in these meetings, there's no laughter in those meetings, I'll tell you, this is intense stuff. The second, the second little price tag you pay, you must accept the fact that they have made you different and you will always be different and you might as well accept it. And one of their gurus said one time, we're like trees and when we were sapling, someone reached and pulled out our hearts. We continue to grow, we look like all other trees but inside there's nothing. And the third price tag you pay is easy to understand if you're like me, intermittent but intense self-pity. I could have been something, boy. I, you know, in the movie On the Waterfront, there's a, there's a scene in there, this boxer sitting in the back seat with his gangster brother. He's saying, you, uh, you should have been gooder to me, Jimmy. I could have been a contender. And I know that feeling, so I couldn't have been, because I couldn't find a place I fit. The places I didn't fit, I almost became big. Not quite. If I could have found the place I fit, I said, if, I, if only people would have treated me right, they would have given me the right send-off. And I think, well, these are inconvenient penalties to pay, but they're not as bad as guilt. Guilt is a suicide disease. And maybe, maybe they are not for most people. But for people like me, and I presume like you, these are deadly things. You read this book, Alcoholics Anonymous, and they specifically list the three most lethal emotions for people like me. Resentment, feelings of difference, and despair.
And what's so bad about that? They will justify every drink I take till I die from it. It will never have been my fault. You don't understand. I watch a lot of people die that way. But I went through that. I did a lot of things. But the thing that helped me the most in my life, when I was 15, as I say, I was in the town of Wisconsin, but saved my life. The Second World War started. I have small, skinny, pimply-faced little snot. I told my mother I want to go to Superior and visit my aunt. She packed my little bag and gave me bus fare, and I hitchhiked to San Francisco. Dumb, dumb, didn't know how the hell I got there. I got a ride most of the way, the guy in the Navy, and he said, well, I told him I want to be in the Marine Corps and kill Japs. He said, you're, you're a little small. He said, uh, pimples on your face kind of cut into your masculinity. He said, but you might want to go in the Merchant Marine because they'll take anybody. All the good guys been in the Navy now. And this, uh... So he told me what to do, and he dropped me off to Coast Guard office in San Francisco. And they said, I said, I want to be in the Merchant Marine. He told me to put down 16 instead of 15. And I said, well, you're only 16, kid. You have to have your parents' permission. So I took it around the block, got my parents' permission. <laughs> got it and I'll tell you how desperate they, they were. Issued me Siemens papers right there. Permanent ones came later. But then they sent me out of the National Democratic Union with another guy. We signed some kind of papers for union dues or something. They took us to the waterfront. That afternoon, we were on a ship going to the South Pacific. And it really was fun for about an hour. It kind of went down after that. But these ships were really, you know, I remember the first day I got, they had said to go in my cabin. Now, if you live in Wisconsin, you know what a cabin is. It's got logs on it. It's what it's got. There's no cabins on a ship. They all got walls. And I was in there, and I, I was very ill at ease. I tried to tell them a little joke that I used to go over good in study hall. It didn't go over good at all. They said, get your bunk and shut up. <laughs> I still remember lying there. It was hot, and I'd never been in a ship was moving like this, and it was hot in there, and these guys start talking. And my God, I thought, these are sinners. I mean, I've done some bad things, but these are sinners of the first world. These are big-time sinners. They'd been in San Francisco for three days with the ship, and they'd been doing dirty things. I just couldn't believe my ears. And I suddenly realized, of course, they've all got black hair. Those are the Catholics I heard about. <laughs> I've never seen any close-up, but I... I don't want to give the wrong impression. Even at the age of 15 in Eau Claire, Wisconsin, I'd had sex. But I'd been apprehensive, and I'd been afraid, and I'd been alone. <laughs> and these guys had been doing it with people. <laughs> but among the things that happened to me on that ship, they were all evil, scum of the earth guys. I mean, they would have been pirates in any other era. Ha, <laughs> ha, and they'd drink whiskey every day, and I was just appalled by that. And one day a guy shoved a bottle of whiskey in my face. How about you, Junior? You think you're bad enough for no snort? And I drew the line there, because I may be dumb, and I may be small, and I may be a partially bad person, but I'm not like that. And I was just going to just lay him out. I was going to say, all right, you, get that bottle out of my face. I guess you don't know that I'm a Norwegian Lutheran. We don't drink whiskey. Even if we did, I promised my mother and grandmother I wouldn't drink, and I never will. And don't you ever put that whiskey in my face again, or I'll slap you. Now, I'm just going to say that. He says, Why do you think you're mad enough? I heard this voice say, God damn right. <laughs> I was been a little weak under pressure, too. So I had my first drink in that bottle. All of our speakers talked about the first drink and what it did in their life. My first drink didn't. My first drink hit my stomach, came right up again all over the guy's shirt. Get the bottle, I throw some of it. 
but all the way across the Pacific when nobody was looking, I'd sneak in this guy's, one of these guys' sea bags and take a drink of whiskey. And I hated it. I'd throw up enough to wipe it up. But I wanted so much for those guys to think I was a man. And nothing would have made them think I was a man. I was this tall with a face of pimples and dumb. But I didn't know that. We were just coming into Pearl Harbor. They're still digging up ships. And uh, I was done taking a drink of that crap the night before my 16th birthday, and the drink stayed down. Oh, God, I couldn't breathe. Just <laughs> and like everybody else has talked about this week, all of a sudden something significant happened. I found myself feeling significantly better. <laughs> and I didn't think anything about it. I just discovered why people drink whiskey. It made me feel better. I didn't become a terrible alcoholic. The next day, these guys took me to Honolulu, got me three or four bottles of beer, and I got drunk, and they laughed at me, and I got sick, and we all thought it was funny. And I didn't become a terrible alcoholic at all. And I took, made some more trips. When I was 17, I went in the Navy. Then the war was in the Naval Hospital up in Northern California being sewed together. They passed around some tests. I wasn't good on tests, so I got a high school diploma. But I'm still a junior in high school. Went back to the University of Wisconsin after the war. And, Went to school there and met a lovely woman who dark hair, mysterious black eyes, and she won my heart. And then she told me she was a Catholic. I couldn't take her home. Hit her in the car. But she won my heart. We got married. Ran off the world. I became a sports writer. Almost became a teacher, but I was through a mix-up. I was fired before I started for moral turpitude. Wasn't my fault. But anyway, I went off the world and became a sports writer, and uh, today, that's still my favorite job I ever had, writing sports. But my wife began manifesting the terrible behavior patterns of Catholics. She began grinding out those kids just one after another, just boom, boom. I think my next career was a national distributor of small Catholics. Boom. <laughs> Remember saying to her, can't we use birth control? No. I don't know what I'd have done if she had said yes. It's hard for young people today to realize this. Incidentally, I want to say one thing. There's a lot of young people at this convention. My home group in Los Angeles, the, the Pacific group, which is about a thousand people every Wednesday. You, some of you have been there. There's a lot of young people in that group. And I don't know if you young people here have everybody told you this, but we tell the young people in our group, you are the future leaders of AA. And I'll tell you something else. If you're like the young people in our group, I'm really glad I'm going to be dead. <laughs> uh, maybe things will change, I don't know. But I uh, said to my wife, can't we use birth? No. And I, you know, th people didn't talk about those things then. I mean, let me tell you, I'd been overseas, I'd fought in a war, I'd been through university. And I, I think I heard the word condom once in my life in a Navy training film where they showed this voluptuous girl, oh boy, and explained what would happen if you didn't you get, use a condom. At that stage of my life, I didn't care what would happen. <laughs> give me VD, but give me you, baby. <laughs> and what you see in those days, you'd get kind of second-rate people or tough guys saying things like, I got a rubber. <laughs> and even then, they'd be ashamed to go in and buy it. They'd have to hire someone who was depraved. And they'd go in and they'd be ashamed. And they'd say things like, hey, give me a pack of cigarettes. 
Now look at the progress we've made in the last 55 years. Drugstore at my house, kids come in and say, Hey, give me a package of condoms! And some cigarettes. <laughs> Incidentally, I was a smoker. I learned to smoke on that ship, among other things. And I smoked two and a half or three packs a day, every day for 40-some years. And as a, oh, I just am sick the way smokers are being treated in the world today. I had to stop because of some throat problems. But you know, you drive down the streets in California, raining and cold, and they all have to go outside and smoke. <laughs> You're going to need a bell next. Unclean, unclean. <laughs> you go up this hall out here, you see this wave of smoke coming out. You look inside, all these people. <laughs> Get to the meeting, no, I haven't got time. <laughs> And the worst thing about being a smoker now is that people have, think they have the right to come up to you and denounce you for smoking that don't even know you. Some say things, why do you smoke? Don't you know secondhand smoke does to us people? You know, you just want to smash it in the face. I never, uh, they used to do that when I was smoking. They finally thought of an answer, but it's too late to use it very long until till they operate on my throat. So any smoker here, I'm going to give you a solution tonight you would hear at no other meeting in the world tonight, and you've come to the right place. When some puke comes up to you and says, why do you smoke? Here's what you say. Why do I smoke? I have a feeling that one of these days they'll find a market for phlegm and I'll be rich. <laughs> that person will never ask you again. But all the years I was doing these things, and uh, little by little, I drank and caroused and had fun. And the only problem I've had, I drinking, I never realized what drinking did for me. I was sober while I could think and look back and see what it did. But you know, drinking, I guess in the first drink, and I didn't stay drunk at all. But what drinking did for me, I didn't realize what it was doing. Drinking gets rid of that scale. Sometimes temporarily, it's a freedom. And when you get sober, you're going back there again, but at least you're rid of it for a while. It makes me feel the way men look, and I know of no other technique that allows me to do that. And so I, I sometimes drink too much. They were sent to AA and talk about how your problem is drinking. I don't explain to people. My problem is my feelings get hurt too easily. And sometimes people talk about me, I'm sure. And on, on, I don't, you don't really say those things, but I know deep in my heart. And I don't feel like I'm quite enough sometimes. Sometimes I feel like I'm better than other people. Sometimes I feel like I'm not enough. I just never feel like other people. I'm above them or below them, above them or below them. And sometimes the pressure gets so great, I have to break that pressure and I drink. But I don't drink because I'm a drinker. How do I explain that to people? So I went to AA off and on. I had ups and downs and rounds and children and wound up in Dallas. Tracy Locke, big advertising agency, writing on the... Elsie Nelber ads for the Borden Company and uh, blew up there and went down the hill. Just everything went. My, they called my wife and they decided to fire me and they told her her name was poor Charlotte. <laughs> and they warned her I was going to be fired and I probably wouldn't be home for a couple of days. I'd be drunk as usual. So when I did get home, they'd taken my car. I got to my house out in Highland Park just a block from SMU. And, and uh, the house was empty. Kids were gone, she was gone, furniture was gone, rugs were gone, just my pile of clothes. I stood there, pile of clothes, and 
Last week I was a big shot in this town, and now I'm nothing. And I got to get out of town because I'm signed out of that nut house to her, and I'm sure she turned me in. And I got a guy to, a friend of mine moved cars, and he gave me a car to drive to Los Angeles. And I got as far as El Paso the next night, and I had a big drunken party with some friends in Juarez, and next night I drove to Tucson or Phoenix and got drunk there and lost the car. <laughs> Haven't found it yet. All, everything, all my personal effects, all my records, all my ID, all my everything, clothing. Got in a fight that night with a guy in the street trying to be a cop. He threw me in jail overnight. In the middle of the night, I was so sick. It was so hot in this drunk tank, 105 or so. I threw up on a guy's bunk, and he, he wasn't in it, thank God. But I laid down next to there and went to sleep, and he came back wherever he was and found this drunken guy laying next to his bunk with his bed, bunk full of bed. And he said, you drunken bastard, and kicked my front teeth out. That was one of the few mornings I was really glad I'd been in psychoanalysis. <laughs> Because I was almost instantly able to identify his problem. I remember thinking, this son of a bitch is overreacting. But I didn't want to say anything and make trouble. And the next day I came out of there, bloody, sick, torn clothes, no place to go, couldn't, went over to the AA club, fun with the AA club, went over there, because the only place you go and you look like that. And I hustled some old lady for $20 for a 12 step house, which I used for a bus fare in Los Angeles. And I had a guy there that I'd give him to start. He was a big star now, and I got some money. I told him I'd been in a terrible car accident, and I needed some money. He gave me quite a bit. And I had a nice party for a week, and then I ran out and I called him up. And I said, Ted, I got to have some more money. He said, I called Dallas. You didn't have a car accident. You're a bum. Stay away from me. I said, Jesus, Ted, you got He said, All right, come to the back of the station. His station was on upstairs on Hollywood Boulevard. He's coming to the back tonight at 9 o'clock, but don't ever come back again. So I was out there in the rain, and he came out of the fire escape and threw a $5 bill, fluttered down to a puddle, and I crawled out and got it. Thanks, Ted. And a couple of days later, two big guys threw me out of a skid row mission and said, Stay out of here, you mooch. I tried to explain to him, I'm not a mooch. Three years ago, I was on the faculty of the University of Texas. Ads that I wrote were still running in the New Yorker in Lifetime. I've had my picture in the New York Times. How many people do you know have had their picture in the New York Times? But it's really hard to explain these things in midair. <laughs> <laughs> and I stood outside that mission, and I, I knew I was dying, 120-some pounds. And I had a terrible feeling. I didn't know what the feeling was. I can look back and see what it is now because it's such a terrible feeling. I know what it is because I've seen other people have it. And I'm sure there are some people in this room who have had it. Not many, but some. You suddenly realize there's no longer any friendly direction. It's all foreign. Nobody cares out there in any direction. No, there's no direction you're going to go where if you go there far enough, someone's going to say, gee, I'm glad to see you. And I would have bet I was going to die within a week. I felt so sick and so bad. Couldn't even call my mother because my stepfather would never let me get through to her because he was so tired of watching me play on her emotions so she'd go down to her tiny little bank account and take some more money and send it to her little boy to try to help him. He'd rather have her think I was dead than the way I was. I don't blame him, really. But I knew I had to get off the street before I died and find out where there was an AA club. It was a long ways away. I didn't know it was a long ways. It was a, a Wilshire and Fairfax, wherever the hell that was. They showed me how to get on Wilshire and I walked for a long time, maybe an hour and a half in the rain. 
72 long blocks now, so sick. I remember, still kind of vaguely remember walking up that expensive street and watching cars going by, <laughs> pointing at me because I was sick and desperate. They got to this club and the same old crap, you know, same old steps and turn your life over to God. And, and if you are a bad, by that time I had broken all 10 commandments, so there's no way I'm going to return to God, I'll tell you. And I'm not, I wish my problem were alcohol. I wish I could stop drinking and get that great elation. I hear these people talk about their meetings. And then my life straightened out. Instead of knowing if I stay sober too long, I'll commit suicide or go crazy. I hung around that club and got his, a couple, two or three days, I wanted a guy who said I could sleep in an abandoned car in the AA club parking lot. And I slept in there at night, sick with the club, and sat around all day and, manager said, well, you're supposed to have a, be a member to sit around here in the daytime, but you're such a mess. You can sit around in the daytime, but you mustn't mooch any money, and you must go to a meeting every night. And I went to a meeting every night, and I just hated it. Same old success stories for people I wouldn't hire to mow my lawn. How in the hell do they do that? I'm smarter than they are. I'm better than they are. What the hell is wrong with me? Why? And I suppose I would have died. And I look back, look back many times, thought, what saved me? I'll tell you of all the ironic things. As my sobriety, I didn't think it would be. I never wanted it to be. Didn't want to be sober very long, so it would be lethal if I were. But a guy used to come to the meetings who was an actor in the movies. And I remember saying, hey, I've seen you in the movies. Yeah, yeah. And it really impressed me. I mean, I've been pretty good level, but still dumb seeing a guy in the movies. And... Uh, I thought, that's really something. And then he started on me, you've been sober four or five days hanging around this club, you better get a sponsor so you can do something. And I, th- I thought, oh, what did I do? I'll get this movie star to be my sponsor. And perhaps we can share his fame and fortune. <laughs> and I'll get my ass out of this town. This is a bad town for sensitive people. And I had a plan that... I'd get some money from him, I'd get some teeth, I'd get some clothes, I'd go back to New York, my eyes would be clear, and I'd be sober for a few weeks, and I'd, I'd say, you know, yes, I was drinking, I really cut into my abilities, but I've got some, you can see my ads in the New Yorker, they're still running, and I used to be a good guy, I'll work for nothing, until you see if I can do the job and pay me well. I knew they'd do that, and I'd get some money, and I'd save it up, and I'd come back to Los Angeles one day. And I'd buy the AA club, and I'd burn it down. I'd, I'd wait till they were having a club meeting so they'd all be in there. I didn't really understand the, the nature of it till I saw the movie uh, Carrie some years later, where then she burned down the high school with all the rotten kids in it. Yeah, pour blood on them too, goddamn them. You know. I said, Bob, you my sponsor? He said, Yes, but I want you to do what I tell you. Oh, sure, Bob. <laughs> and I. Uh, they said he wasn't a very good actor. He, he just a, I found out later, just a small-time character actor. I've been in more movies in the last few years than he ever was in, but I didn't know that. All I knew, I'd seen him in the movies, and had a mystique to it. And uh, he was a good actor, though, because he, he acted decently in the meetings. When he wasn't in the meetings, he was a right-wing fascist AA pig. <laughs> do this, do that. <laughs> I used to think, why would I take this crap from this guy? Because he was my 
He was my passport out of there, that's why, and I'd put up with his crap. And I found out later he didn't like me. <laughs> and I don't blame him at all, because I'll tell you, I was the worst type of newcomer there is to be had in AA. And I know that because I've, had, I've now sponsored people like that, and I just want to kill them. <laughs> and these are people who've been slipping a long time and know all about AA, but continue to drink. And they say things like, uh, Bob, I think you're misquoting the book there, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> they just, you just... <laughs> but he tried to help me. God bless him. He'd take me with him sometimes. And, and somewhere along the line, whether talking to me or somewhere along the line, I remember, I had no idea that that would change my life. I heard him say something that seems... You say to somebody, anyway. He said, if you think your problem is alcohol, you're going to die drunk. What the hell is that, though? Maybe we should join the Screen Actors Guild. Is that the answer? What the hell is this? And I talked to him later. I said, Bob, what, what do you tell that guy the problem is not alcohol? Is that, what are you telling him? He said, that's because that's the name of the game here, kid. I said, you've got to be nuts. What are you talking about? He said, look, if you think your problem is alcohol, your chances are you die in drunkenness very, very high. Well, what is the problem, Bob? He said there's something that sounds like it that fools a lot of people, but it kills it. It's something called alcoholism. I said, oh man, don't play word games with me. I'm, I'm a smart guy. I may look bad, but I'm smart. Alcohol, alcoholism. <laughs> he said, Jesus, you're a smart aleck. I said, thanks a lot, Bob. And so he took a long time to explain this difference to me. The one salient phrase that always stuck in my mind was, it boils down to this. If your problem is alcohol, I'll tell you how you overcome it. You stop drinking and you clean up your act and you're home free. However, if you are one of us who suffer from alcoholism, however, this, which unfortunately for you and me looks almost exactly the same to the naked eye, this mind-consuming, perception-distorting, bodily-eroding thing called alcoholism. You'll discover sooner or later that stopping drinking and cleaning up your act has no significant long-term effect on your life other than to gradually make it so painful you can't stand it. I said, Jesus, Bob, that's me. It's happened again and again. But then why would people drink if it's, all, if it's doing all these terrible things? And why do people drink? He said, that's the whole point, kid. Nobody ever seems to understand this when they come here. You're not here because what alcohol does to you. My God, you're here for a much more significant reason. You're here because of what alcohol does for you. He says, people like us have a very unnatural reaction to alcohol. Alcohol has to do something special for us. When it does something to us, it's way down the road. Well, what does it do for us, Bob? He said, you notice if you drink... It almost instantly alters your perception of reality. It almost instantly changes your relationship to the people around you. It almost instantly makes me taller and more self-contained and then smaller and less frightening to me. I said, Jesus, Bob, what's wrong with that? <laughs> he says, because you're going into fantasy. You're not changing anything. You're just living in a fantasy and pretty soon... It sets up this phenomenon of craving, which I don't understand at all, he said, but it does. And eventually you just get in trouble. I thought about that too. You'll hear this phenomenon of craving mentioned a lot. Nobody's ever had an explanation for it. 
But I think I have, at least I've had a theory in my life and maybe some other lives like this. But when I drink, in effect, I'm going from black and white to technicolor. That's where I'm going, changing my life. And as soon as I'm there, it seems like, without even being aware of it, I begin to sag and I instinctively hold, keep drinking to hold that, to hold that edge, to hold that feeling. Don't even know what I'm doing. You ever notice that? Watch people so drunk they can't walk and they're crying out for alcohol. They don't know why. Give me another drink. They're trying to hold it. Eventually you drink so much you get drunk and you can't do it. But, but you've got to hold that craving as a need to not go back to what I'm trying to get away from. I said, Jesus, Bob, I understand that. But if people stop, if it makes people stop drinking, why? Why did they feel so bad? I mean, why did this feel good? He's asked the other things yet. People don't seem to realize. And he had a theory that I've thought about a lot recently, last few years. And it, it doesn't really mention the book. It hints at it, but I, I believe it to be true. At least for people like me. He said, kid, every human being, when they're born in the world, they have to grow up. You have to go through a lot of things. You have to deal with problems and situations and feelings and introspections and problems and crises and so on. And you find ways to get through them and find ways, the things you have to stay away from, things you can do, you have problems, how to overcome them, so on. Because that process is called maturing. And when you become a mature individual, you have a way to live. You have very few big deals, because you know what's going to happen. There's some unexpected things, but you don't get yourself, you don't paint yourself in corners, you don't do these things. He said, it really is wonderful. But it hardly ever happens to alcoholics. I said, why is that, Bob? He says, because along the way, when we have problems, we drink to get rid of them. Here's to you, household finance. (laughs) Screw you. (laughs) Didn't want your job anyway. Screw you. (laughs) And on and on. I take emotions I can't deal with and push them aside. But now I'm getting sober, I'm going to be sober. And I never would have guessed this in 10,000 years on my own. Because so I have grown up body, grown up brain, grown up verbal skills, grown up strength, and never once knowing that all of these things are at the intermittent beck and call of childish emotions. We call them alcoholic emotions because it sounds a little more gratifying. Oh, that's my alcoholism. <laughs> what are alcoholic emotions? I love you. I hate you. You hurt my feelings. I'll never come around here again. Will you marry me? <laughs> you want to see alcoholic emotions? Stop by a schoolyard some morning. Mine, mine. <laughs> I said, Jesus, Bob. I understand that. He says, pretty soon get so get so much much problems, you gotta get some relief. In fact, you get to a point sometimes that psychiatrists say people like us get to a point where we must drink to preserve our sanity. And you drink till you have to get sober. And you stay sober till you have to drink. And you drink till you have to get sober. And every time back and forth your mind tells you, see, it wasn't the alcohol at all. It's all these other things they don't understand. I remember thinking, my God, Bob, that's me. That's my life. He said, there's a name for people like you. Uh-oh. What is it, Bob? He said, you're an alcoholic. 
You think, my God, I'm an alcoholic. I've just thrown away 10 years, the best 10 years of my life. I've had great opportunities on top of life, the world, just all over. And I hear I'm standing in the streets without no teeth, with nothing that nobody cares for me because I never understood that little simple. I said, Bob, why the hell does A talk about that? Instead of this obsession of the mind and allergy of the body and all this crap. He said, kid, he talks about it in the first step. You have to admit you're having problems with alcohol and then you have to have, admit your problems without alcohol. Yes, I knew that. <laughs> People say they can't take the first step. Once you walk in here, you've already taken the first step. If you could drink sensibly, you wouldn't be coming here. If you could live without drinking, you'd be out there living that comfortably. It's only when they both are not working you come here. People, you, and I never dreamed, because I had interpretations and variations of what the first step meant, how deep. And that was in January of 1959, I guess. And I've never really craved a drink since then. There were a few times in my early year or two that I wanted a beer, sometimes a hot summer day, or like a martini and look good in the ad. But I, and I used to wonder, why wouldn't I want a drink? And I guess it's because all those years in and out of AA, I watched people who were really alcoholics. They'd come back and talk about their slips and how bad they were, and their brother got run over in a slip, and they had run around here. I thought, Jesus. It's so bad now, if, I, if, I, if I'm an alcoholic and have a slip, what, what could happen to me? So I uh, never drank. I gave myself permission to commit suicide, but I didn't drink. I wouldn't drink. And I'll tell you, there were times in the first couple of years, it got bad enough to drink, but not quite bad enough to commit suicide. And it saved my bacon. And Bob really ground away. And I want to say one more thing quickly, if you're new. I'm not going to talk about this stuff. Just the first one or two, maybe. Because then, I was there a little while, and I was now an alcoholic, and I got a little job, got fired, but I had a little job. And they started saying, well, my Bob's saying, time to work the steps, get out of the steps. I said, Bob, thank you for telling me I'm an alcoholic, but I'm not an alcoholic of the type you people are. I cannot, the steps are too religious. I said, that second step, I cannot return to God, Bob. I cannot. If God exists, I am damned. I don't care what you or anybody else says. I, you know, I thought about it later. That's what Hitler used to say. You give me their minds till they're 12, and they'll be Nazis as long as they live somewhere inside of them. And I know that very well, and I hate that way. I remember telling them, I've, I've broken all Ten Commandments, Bob. I cannot return to God. It wasn't for several years later I discovered I haven't broken all Ten Commandments. I discovered I, uh, I've never coveted my neighbor's manservant. <laughs> but where I live, you say, yet, you know, who knows? But he said, I said, I can't return to God. He said, Kim, you don't have to return to God. Oh, to a power greater than myself, Bob. Does that fool the other children? Does it fool me? Now, don't treat me like an adult, for Christ's sake. He says, it doesn't say that. It says you come to believe in something. You don't return to anything. There's nothing in AA that ever asks you to return to any previous thought process because you're coming out of sickness and bad perceptions. you got to come to believe in something. Can't you believe in God? I said, no, I can't, Bob. He says, can't you believe in AA? I said, no, I'd like to, but he's too religious for people like me. I can't make that. He says, do you think I'm doing better than you are? I said, of course you are. He said, congratulations, I'm your new higher power. <laughs> and he became a higher power, and I could accept that. He could not send me to hell. He tried, but he couldn't. <laughs> and he got, you know, they say, how can you have it? People around the club, you say, 
There's that crazy bastard who thinks his sponsor's God. <laughs> I, think, I didn't think he was God, but I trusted him. I began to trust him. And I'll tell you something that happened along the way. I began to get the strange feeling he knew how I felt. I had never felt that about another human being in my life. I began to get the feeling as I listened to him talk, he knew how I felt. To those new people here tonight, or people here are fighting AA, I'll tell you something. If I could give you one gift tonight, if I could give you the gift that would be better than you'll ever get, I hope to help you find somebody that you believe knows how you feel. Because I'll tell you, you don't, you're, no short, you're not short of advice. All of us have had enough advice to last us 10,000 years. People like this just invite advice from passers-by. Just, here's what I think you ought to do. That's you. But if you can find somebody who you believe knows how you feel, that advice becomes meaningful information. And you will take actions whether you believe them or not. It's an amazing thing. And you have to have that belief because sponsors tell you stupid, stupid things. I mean, they just are stupid. Now, they don't actually tell you this, but it sounds like this. See that rough up there? That's bright red. Oh, it's more of a light tan or cream color, Bob. I say, I tell you, it's red. <laughs> I thought it was tan or cream. Well, you act like it's red. <laughs> now, they don't tell you the color of walls, but they tell you things equally stupid. I don't care how it looks to you. You apologize to that woman. You call her a bitch. She is a bitch, Bob. <laughs> Why do you think she's a bitch? She told her new girls to stay away from me. <laughs> well, you're wrong. You apologize. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> bitch. <laughs> I don't care how it looks to you. You hang on to that job. Jesus, Bob. I used to be a big shot. I used to have big offices with secretaries. And I'm here stuffing envelopes for 91 cents an hour. Oh, this is wrong. He said, you're lucky you got the job. Get to work and stay there. <laughs> I don't care how it looks. You go to that Friday night meeting. Oh, but Bob, I don't mind the other ones, but that meeting's a big click. It's just an in-group, and they call on each other, and they all laugh at me, and they joke. They talk about me behind my back. It's a terrible bunch. They think I'm a crackhead, Bob. Or maybe they're right. Go to the goddamn meeting. <laughs> and this goes on and on and on and on. And one day you look up and the damn ceiling is red. <laughs> then you have to spend the rest of your life dealing with crapheads you think is tan or like cream for all that. But little by little, the perception changes. That's the change. The same things look different. It's the damnedest thing you can believe in. You've got to believe in it. You've got to find somebody who you believe in enough to take that meaningful information. So I'm going to come to believe in God for what? I'm almost done. Well, restore me to sanity. What the hell does that mean? Restore me to sanity. I'm rather educated. And I've read, you could read 10 books, textbooks on mental health, and you get 10 different descriptions of sanity. Oddly enough, psychosis 
is easily defined. Insanity is easy to define. It's for the brain to oversimplify it. Under great pressure and great conflict and desperation to maintain its integrity will make part of reality look different than it is. Just so to relieve the pressure. Now, for, for a lot of it, you'll go to the insane asylum, but a lot of people just they have little rifle areas. That's what's so I read in the paper about this neighbor who's lived comfortably for 20 years, but suddenly something set him off and he killed him with a gun. Somebody got to that little circle of psychosis. And uh, so this psychosis is uh, easily defined. Now, here's the funny thing alcoholics almost never become psychotic, it is almost unheard of. But you say, they say alcohol is the seventh greatest cause of insanity, not from psychosis. Alcoholic insanity is something entirely different. Alcoholic insanity is a physical condition. Any of you here, and all of you here, have been drunk and woke up in the morning and had that terrible thirst, you know, God put the fire out, Jesus. The reason for that is because alcohol is a dehydrating substance. Isn't that something? A fluid that takes fluid out of your body. And it kills all kinds of cells, dries them up, and uh, you re- replace the fluid the next day, and the cells come back to life. There's only two organs that, once the cells are dead, they never revive. They're in your brain and in your liver. That's why we die from liver problems. That's what alcoholic insanity is. When you drunk long enough and hard enough, and it varies from individual to individual, Enough brain cells are dried out in your brain so you cannot function. That is called alcoholic insanity, or more correctly, Korsakoff syndrome. Now, most of you will never see a case of that. You don't see, they're not floating around. I see them all the time, and it's enough to make me oh, cry almost. Because these people are sitting on a bed somewhere, and every day people come and change their diapers, and put them to bed, and feed them, and get them up, and change their diapers and put them to bed and feed them and, and they could never get better because the brain is gone. Your body's healthy. They can stay like that for 40 years sometimes. The families come down to see if dad knows them. They don't know who the hell they are. So they cry and go home again. That's alcoholic insanity. That's bad news. But not, why don't alcoholics become psychotic? You know why? Because when it gets bad enough, long enough, they drink alcohol. And the value of alcohol in alcoholics, it almost instantly alters their perception of reality. You and I, although we never think about it this way, have the power to induce temporary psychosis. And that's what it does. Then you get sober, you get suffering, but temporary psychosis. So I really, I thought about that a long time, and I thought the explanation of that is quite simple. I have to come to believe there's some power here, whatever that power may be, well, allow me to live in the world without having to induce psychosis to stand it. Whether it's alcohol or drugs or medications that some doctor thinks is cute to give me, to teach me to live in reality. Now, the nice thing in that step, you don't have to understand how it's going to be done. You can't even, how could it be done? But you're surrounded by people for whom it's done. So you have to believe it then. Empirical observation. And so I was able to take the second step. As a result of that, I came to understand the third step was for people like me. And then I'm all done describing the steps. It's quite simple. I have to admit I'm having trouble drinking. I'm having trouble sober. Somewhere here there's a power I can't imagine what the hell it is will enable me to live without drinking 
So I got to turn myself over to that power and do what they say and do what they say. That's all. That's what it meant to me and saved my life. And over a period of time, my sponsor used that power to get me to write an inventory. I swore I'd never write. And he got me to make amends to people. My father, I hadn't talked to him in 10 years. I had to travel to Wisconsin to make amends to him. And I hated it. But over a period of time, my father and I got close. But he was old and sick. He came out and lived with me. When he died, we were holding his hand. He smiled, and I smiled. But just to tell you the change of perception. If someone comes up to me tonight and says, you know, your dad, nice guy. But he, uh, if based on what I knew when I got sober, he said, tell me about your dad. I'd say, my dad, that rotten bastard, deserted my mother and I as far as I can tell. He left us. He never wanted one, one interest in my kids. He married some other woman that I hate and who hates me. And he's dead now, and I hope he's in hell, and I hope he's jabbing him with knives, and I hope he's burning up. But if you would ask me, based on having to make amends and do things with him, tell me what your dad said, my dad and I really didn't see things the same way because of our perceptions, but little by little we were brought together. And over a period of years when I was instructed to treat my father like he was a good father, he became a good father in my perception. And we were very close, closer than most fathers and sons I ever knew. And when he died, I guess he's in the Norwegian heaven up there, Valhalla. And I hope he's saving the seat right next to him. It won't be terribly long. I'm coming along. Hang on, Pa. Here I come. Now, what changed? Just my perception. Just my perception of the same facts. And that's what AA is about. Why they ask you to do these things. Not to become good or wonderful. No matter as someone said, Billy said this morning, no matter how hard you work to program, you never rise above sober alcoholic. You're going to have human being. You're going to have days, ups and downs, and ups and downs. But little by little, you develop something that is... I look back at my life, I think, what did I get out of it? I had some successes, but sober a while. I finally got the radio and television. I became a hot shot in Hollywood. Got some awards, and I uh, went downtown working public relations. An article in the Reader's Digest about me, and faces out hot, slicker than snot, I'll tell you. And then I was 15 years sober in some hideous fit of do-gooderism. I quit a job in Beverly Hills, and for the last 30 years, I've run the mission on Skid Row that threw me out in 1958. And I'll tell you why that is. It was such a significant decrease in salary, I thought it must be spiritual, but it wasn't. <laughs> so now I'm down to just looking for those two guys. Once I get them, I'll be out of there. But I watch people around me die every day from our disease. I'm not down there as a 12-stepper. I'm running a big facility on Skid Row where people die around us. I get out of my car every morning and step over the bodies of men, women, and children dying from alcoholism and drug addiction. And I go in there and I and my crew of 140 recovering alcoholics try to find ways to help them. But that's not my AA. I wouldn't do that for nothing in AA. I don't go near AA in that office. When I go home tonight, I'm in AA. I don't ever want to get paid for what I'm doing. But it's a great feeling. And you know, I eventually came to believe in AA as my higher power. Then my sponsor died. I got another sponsor who was a very spiritual man. Nothing ground me. He just showed me with his life. And eventually, I remember the night I tried to pray to see if God would come and kill me. And he didn't. And I, little by little, came to believe in God. And I, with his kindness, I, my sponsor, I began to realize God does not really hate me. I'm not that important. God loves me. He loves me as much as you. No more, no less. God doesn't play favorites. 
then why are people dying in front of me on the street? Because they have not taken the actions that allow a little bit of God's grace to come in. That's all. And as not, if I did those actions, I would have died in the street and sworn there wasn't a God. I don't think God gets me a parking spot or a job or a new friend. God sends me a picture of, you can call it grace, serenity, whatever you want to do. And my job is to dial the knobs from time to time to allow the picture to form. I was dialing a TV set. There's a vertical hole. There's a, one says prayer, one says help somebody we don't feel like it, one says go to their meetings, on and on. And I can't sustain them ever because I'm a human being and I'm emotional. Sometimes I feel great spirituality and then somebody will do something to hurt my feelings. Ha ha! Just, but somewhere in there, I'm living with some degree of peace. So it's an odd situation. As a result of coming to AA and staying here and not believing anything, I eventually came to believe I was an alcoholic. I eventually came to believe in God. I came to believe that my life is meaningful because what I do here. You know, Jerry and I, he kind of joked about this when he talked yesterday morning or last night. But when I got transferred from that alcoholic ward to that alcoholic ward in Big Spring, there's a guy named Les Ross who was running it. He was an old... But what they did in Texas at that time, they still do it to a degree, but not quite as bad as they used to. Now here I said, my name is Clancy. I'm still that alcoholic. Hi, Clancy. But down there I got in this ward. And I was just off shock treatments and I heard this old fool Les say, my name is Leas. And through the grace of God and the power of this simple program, it's not been necessary for me to drink any alcohol or take any mind-sedating or tranquilizing medications since my sobriety date. And for this, I'm truly grateful. And he's all bulked. Ah, Leas. Jesus. Maybe it's the shock treatments or something. I can't stand this. If I ever get to be in a position of power and strength where I have the ability to stand up in front of people and tell them the truth, I'd tell them the truth anyway. So I've come here tonight at tremendous expense and no little inconvenience to talk to you people and tell you the truth. And the truth is this. My name is Clancy Immerslund and I'm an alcoholic. And through the grace of God and the power of this simple program, it's not been necessary for you to drink any alcohol or take any mind-sedating or tranquilizing medications since October the 31st, 1958. And for this, I am truly grateful.